teaching team. Uh, the Israel trip today, those of you who have been on it, they are in Tel Aviv, Shiloh, Mount Gerizim, Betli Junction, and Caesarea Maritima. And those of you who haven't, plan to go next year. Schedule your vacation now. Start saving your pennies. I guarantee you. See, should I do this? Money back guarantee. Money back guarantee that you will never, my wife is questioning this, but I'll do a couple of extra days of consulting to do this. You will never read your Bible the same. And you will never read the newspaper about what's going on in the Middle East the same. Money back, guarantee, by Zeke Swift, your preacher for the day. Okay. So we, we are in a series called Building Strong Families in a Complex World. And, and this is a, a series that we've chosen for about three months. And there is no question that the series is a bit more relevant to some. If you are a mother and father and three children, I was going to say rugrats, but that wouldn't be nice, would it? And you're trying to survive day by day and hoping both you and your middle child end up living till the next birthday, this really is for you. But it is relevant for all of us because in first. Peter, it says, each one of us should use whatever gift we have received to serve others, helping them build strong families. That's the Zeke Swift version, as faithful stewards of grace in its various forms. Every one of us can, who had, who's been through that family thing can remember what it's like and pray and intercede for a family. We can offer to help We can offer a night out. We can offer to babysit. At an extended level, we can volunteer for whiz kids and help families that way. We can extend hospitality. And as you heard so well from Lewis Arnold last week, we can even foster even after we are empty nesters. So I hope we can all see that building strong families is not just the purview of someone who has a nuclear family at home, but we can all do this. Now, today we're going to talk about habits of a family on mission, and I'm hoping they are productive for families, but I'm hoping the concept of habits is useful for all of us. And in fact, I would say, especially in families, if we don't have personal habits, it's hard to have family habits. You can't serve what you're not cooking. Well... As we get into this, let's pray. Father, I'm convinced you wired us for habits and you wired us for families and your word always accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it forth and we ask that that would be true as we discuss this subject today and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to take your program... And I would like you to write on the back all of the habits you think a family on mission should have. 
right on the back, all of the habits. Now, you've been to Sunday school, and you've been to church, and you've read books and so forth. So just take a minute and write on your program the habits that you think a family on mission should have. Okay, I see some of you creating fairly exhaustive lists, and I want to ask this question. Do you honestly think I can add anything useful to your list? Do you think you've missed anything? I don't think so. And if I did, would I be helping you, or would I, like the Pharisees of old, be tying up heavy burdens, hard to bear, laying them on your shoulders? So... Rather than that today, I'd like us to talk a little bit about the utility of habits. I'd like to talk about how they're formed. I'd like to illustrate with a framework for them that would apply whether you're an individual or a family. And if we're going to talk about habits, we should probably begin with a definition. So a habit is a settled tendency or usual manner of behavior. It is an acquired mode of behavior that has become nearly or completely involuntary. It's a behavior pattern acquired by frequent repetition that shows itself in regularity or increased facility performance. Does that make sense? Okay, now, how are habits formed? Now, after all, this is a church, is it not? So I'm going to get a little metaphysical in in this habit formation. You and I are eternal souls. So are all the people next to you. You know, for simplicity's sake, your mind, will, and emotion, you are a soul. And God has given that soul a body. It is not the other way around. You are not a body that has a soul. You are a soul that God has given a body. And You have a spirit. We all have a spirit. That's everyone's capacity to connect with God, which according to Ephesians 2 can be in one of two conditions. Either our spirit is dead in trespasses and sins, or it's made alive in Christ. Okay, now, the body God has given us for all its wonder and complexity is simply a device a machine in the technical sense to carry out the instructions of the soul and spirit. Does that make sense? And when the body gets a repeated instruction, a neural pathway develops in the brain and muscle memory develops in the body and a habit is formed. Simple as that. The ability to form habits is God-given and good. Can you imagine how difficult life would be if every morning you had to start from scratch on figuring out how to brush your teeth? The process of forming habits is neutral. Whether the outcome is positive or negative is not the fault of the body. It is dependent on the nature of the signal from the soul or spirit. 
And the process of forming habits is the same whether in the physical realm or in the spiritual realm. Soul instruction, body action. Soul instruction, body action. Soul instruction, body action until a habit is formed. Good, bad, or indifferent. Now, there is kind of an observation. It seems like bad habits are a bit like weeds. They grow up without invitation. And good habits are like a garden that you actually have to cultivate, protect from the deer, fertilize, and so forth and so forth. And there's one more thing about habits that we want to talk about, and that is the nature of the motive. Some habits are externally motivated. Let's call them extrinsic. They are things where one should, you should, I should. That's an extrinsic motivation. And then there are other motivations that are internal. They are intrinsic motivations, which says, I want to, I aspire to, my heart's desire. Now, let me give you a very simple example, again, on the subject of teeth. Is there anyone here that does not know you should floss your teeth? Okay? That's an, for many of us, that's an extrinsic motivation. Somebody told us that. And I, I want to tell you about my journey from extrinsic to intrinsic on that subject. The first thing was a line that I heard first from Marianne Bosiger. Do you know that you do not have to floss all of your teeth? Who can finish that line? Only the ones you want to keep. And if you say that in your dentist office, everybody knows that answer. Okay? And then I went to Dr. Tom. And Dr. Tom was a great dentist, but he also had a lot to say. And he would regale me with the effect of oral health on the rest of my body. And one day he said, Zeke... If you, if you have to choose between brushing or flossing, I want you to floss. And that kicked me over. Because I would like to keep my teeth. And I would like to have the effect of good oral health on the rest of my body. And so I started developing the neural pathways and muscle memory that it takes to floss my teeth every morning. And in fact, at this point, it takes more of a conscious decision not to floss. I really am running late. I won't lose my teeth between now and tomorrow to skip flossing. And I do get some of the benefits. My gums no longer bleed when I go to the dentist for cleaning. And the dentist looks in my mouth and he says, Zeke, your teeth look great. See you in six months. So how do we bring that to bear on our topic for the day? Habits of a family on mission. The key point that I hope will lighten the load of this list is to start with the intrinsic motive and assign and adopt habits that relate to that rather than starting with this phenomenal list of things that we should do and try to sort out between that. Now, I'm going to use an illustration today that has some currency for me. And if you like it, feel free to adopt it. You don't even have to give me credit. 
But on the other hand, you may see parallels in your own life that kind of frame where God is working with you. But it begins in 2 Corinthians 5.15. 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the most meaningful passages in the entire Bible to me. And beginning at verse 13, Paul says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Now, I'm not saying, particularly because my family is here, that I consistently live for Jesus' sake. Nor that I even fully understand all that it means to live for Jesus' sake. But I would rather be trying to figure out what that means and attempt to live for Jesus, even if my efforts fall short, than to be operating on a motive that is less worthy in the long run. In business, we used to say it's better to get a C grade on the right strategy than an A grade on the wrong strategy. And God has shown me, or I have perceived, and I think those are one and the same, a simple framework of habits that support that motive to live for Jesus. And it's see Jesus, hear Jesus, obey Jesus, tell others. And those of us who are aging recognize kind of the fewer points they are, the more likely we are to remember them. Now let's take these one at a time. See Jesus. Let me ask this question. Has anyone recently seen Jesus with your physical eyes walking around Cincinnati? No. Okay? Or even video of him walking around the Sea of Galilee? No. So it's really interesting. In Psalm 25, 300 years before Jesus' birth, David says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. Well, he couldn't have seen Jesus. David couldn't. Not with his eyes. And so then we get into the New Testament in Hebrews 12, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So there must be a way to see Jesus that does not involve eyesight. How do we go about it? How do I go about it? How do you go about it? Well, first of all, there's observation. Paul writes in Romans, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power 
and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. You want to see God? Well, walk outside. Take a look at your body. Take a look at the cosmos. Even look in here and see anything that we originally created on our own. Open your eyes, Paul says. It's it's by observation. And lest we be confused, in Colossians it says, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. What you are looking at is what... Jesus created. The second thing we can do is to study. Jesus says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now I want to take a little detour on the subject of spiritual disciplines. Our friend Dallas Willard says that spiritual disciplines are activities we engage in that are within our power that enable us to do what we cannot do by direct effort. Who has a Bible? Hold it up. I meant to bring one, but this will do. Okay? I cannot see what the Bible will show me about Jesus by looking at what Terry is holding up, can I? But if my spirit, working in conjunction with my soul, says study, I can see what the Bible has to say, what the Bible has to show, what the Bible has to reveal about Jesus. So observe, exercise the spiritual discipline of study, then be attentive. Some time ago, there was a really common thing about God sightings, you know, like kind of one of those vocabulary fads that, that pass through, but it's a really good idea, keeping our eyes open for instances of God at work, seeing, them, seeing God at work in the small and the, and the ordinary, in, in relationships, in humanity, and, and also see it in acts of power. Read the Psalms. The psalmists attributed all the phenomena, the powerful phenomena of our creation to God. We see it when we pray for someone to be healed, and they're healed. And also look for acts of provision. And I want to I give you a recent example. I'd like to introduce you to Lena Batana. Uh, she's a director of a pregnancy center in Kharkov, Ukraine. It's a providential story about how we met she was brought to the U.S. Over the, over the fall for some treatment, and I ended up arranging some diagnostic work here and then ended up managing the finances. So after six months here with 12 months of follow-up treatment, the bills are about $27,000. Lena makes $600 a month in the Ukraine. So in a community of people that are between 15 and 20, all operating independently, or perhaps I should say operating under the direction of the Holy Spirit, 
When I totaled it all up last week, we were $51 short. Two-tenths of one percent off the number. When I conclude, maybe it was me. Maybe I didn't read God's memo about how much I should put in. Coincidence? Yeah, if you only saw it once. But if you see it time after time after time, ask the shell houses. Ask uh, Royce and Liz Baker. Ask the pings, people who are part of faith missions, about the miraculous amounts and the miraculous timing over the course of their life. So be attentive to his provision. Well, let's move on to hearing Jesus. In John, Jesus says, uh, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because, they are not, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Brother Willard says, I believe the single most important thing I have to do is encourage people to believe that God speaks to them and that they can come to understand and recognize his voice. And we've got lots of examples in the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, Samuel, Gideon, David, etc. In the New Testament, Mary, Simeon, Peter, Cornelius, Paul, John, etc. In fact, if we read those passages and take them into our life, we recognize God can actually be quite chatty when the situation dictates. Dallas goes on, you must learn how God speaks not doing so will constantly undermine your confidence in your personal relationship with him. Is that not true? How do we hear? Well, I'd ask the same question. Has anybody heard Jesus audibly recently? Okay? I ask that question not knowing for sure because don't rule it out. Around the world, people are having Jesus speak to them. We have the Bible. I'm not a big fan of red-letter version, but it gives you an idea of the things that Jesus actually said. We have the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus' designated spokesperson in this age. In his last message to his disciples, it's called the Upper Room Discourse or the Last Supper Discourse, he says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And a few minutes later, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit illuminates. He brings to mind. He impresses. And we hear Jesus on his behalf. And don't rule out other people 
who can be vessels to us of the Holy Spirit. Preachers, maybe not today, but another day. Small group leaders. A confidant, a peer mentor, a mentor, a book. These can all be ways in which we hear God speak. And we know that because it resonates when we hear it. And we learn to recognize by the content and by the tonality and by the effect on us that it's the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us. And don't rule out the supernatural. You may not and I may not have experienced them, but God is still in the business of visions and dreams and prophetic words and even his audible voice, all of which he uses as he sees fit. Now, what spiritual disciplines might we have to employ to hear his voice? I would suggest two. Solitude and silence. How likely is it that we will hear the still, small voice of God over the din of the TV and the radio and our handsets and even what goes on in the family or in the community or at work? And I saw something recently as I was reading in Luke. Jesus had the same problem, and he practiced silence and solitude by going to a desolate place to pray. And if we are his apprentices and we want to hear him speak, we may need to go to the desolate place to hear him. We hear Jesus by prayer and fasting. Dallas Willard again. Being close to God means communicating with him, which is almost always a two-way street. Aren't most of our conversations like that? In our ongoing friendship with Jesus, we tell him what is on our heart in prayer and learn to perceive what he is saying to us. And fasting goes along with this because we're essentially saying to God, the matter of discussion or consideration between us at the moment is more important to me than food. Well, let's move to obey Jesus. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. Now, much has been said from right here in the past about the importance, the primacy of obedience. And much has been said about the difference between Western Greek understanding that's about what we know and Hebrew Eastern understanding, which is about what we do. So I won't say more other than to ask, is there any possible way for me to live for Jesus, if that's my motive, without doing what he says? And finally, tell others. 
In Luke 8, there's a story of a demon-possessed man from the country of the Gerasenes. And oh, by the way, if you go on the Israel trip next year, you can stand likely where this occurred. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. There are a couple of lessons in this for us. Jesus told him where to start. At home. Jesus told him what to say. Say what Jesus did for you. He didn't say, share the four spiritual laws. He didn't say, share the bridge. He didn't say, preach a sermon. He didn't say, be self-conscious about what you don't know. He said, tell others what Jesus has done for you. You're an expert. In fact, you're the only expert on what Jesus has done for you. And as a result, Jesus set in motion a testimony that spread through the whole city. Well, how do we begin telling others? We begin with a Shema lifestyle. We've heard this passage, Hear, O Israel. That's the Shema, hear, listen. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, and with all your might. That's what's familiar. Here's what's unfamiliar. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, we often look at that second part and we say it's all about kids. Teach them the commandments. Use those teachable moments of life. But I submit to you, that's really not the meaning of this. I mean, it's true. It's a good idea. But part A is teach these commandments to your kids. And part B is live your faith openly. Integrate the discussion into all of life. Talk naturally about who Jesus is and what he means to you. Establish yourself as a follower of Jesus. And in fact, someone people can reliably come to if they have problems. Check out who God's been preparing. Even the most unlikely people about you, God can be working in their hearts. Look for people of peace people who might be willing to open their families or their communities to spiritual discussions. And it's really not hard. Part of a Shema lifestyle is little Shema statements. They're like appetizers. And, and, and it's simply verbalizing a dimension of our faith or our experience that is relevant to the conversation or the relationship or the situation. Here's an example. Can I pray about you for that? I've never had somebody say no. It might happen. And then surprise them. Pray on the spot. They'll be flabbergasted. What an amazing creation of God that is. That tree, that bird, that cloud, that storm, whatever. 
I read something along that line in the Bible the other day. Have you ever wondered what God thinks about us? Tell me about your faith journey. Are those things hard to say? They're really not. And they're not intimidating. And, and if you say, tell me about your faith journey, and they say, well, um, do you like Skyline or Gold Star better? Well, move on. God hasn't prepared their heart yet. Live for Jesus. See Jesus. Hear Jesus. Obey Jesus. Tell others. How about you? We're going to enter into the time for the Lord's Supper, and it's an opportune because Paul says, let us examine ourselves. Would you take the front of your bulletin and just as you're examining yourself before communion, what are you living for? And, and don't, 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 don't go to the Sunday school answer. Be honest. What are you living for? And ask yourself, do I have a habit framework that enables me to get there? And maybe you want to change it in the future, but maybe it's simply a matter of taking that which you are living for and the habit pattern that you have and sanctifying it. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Take a few minutes for examination and the table of the Lord, that which represents Christ's body broken for us and Christ's blood shed for us is open for you.